Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Emily Eakins. I'm a research fellow and the director of polling here at Cato. We're very glad that you're able to join us this evening to discuss this exciting new research from Democracy Fund Voice and to discuss the implications of the research. This election has been turbulent, uh, to put it mildly. We saw a candidate who seemed unbeatable beaten, and another candidate who said and did things that would have sunk just about any other person's campaign um, sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. Intellectuals, pundits, and the media, until recently, believed that there had been a, con a consensus had been reached um, in favor of greater globalization, cosmopolitanism, and technocracy. This election has undermined the view that this is a consensus um, and has revealed that many Americans feel alienated from institutions, from government, community, and a changing America. And these fears have bubbled up in this election cycle and they're, and they're very evident and clear today. So the question is, how did we get here? Democracy Fund Voice, whose research we're going to be discussing today, has taken on this task to better understand and thus better respond to rising nationalism, populism, and fears over immigration and globalization. We're structuring today's event in two panels. The first panel will be discussing public attitudes that are examined in the, the Democracy Fund Voice report titled, Stranger in My Own Country, Populism and Nativism in America. And then the second panel will discuss the policy implications from the research. After each panel, we'll be able to have a very short question and answer. Um, to tell you a little bit more about Democracy Fund Voice and the background behind this project, we're really glad to have um, Betsy Hawkins, who is is right here. Wonderful. Um, Betsy is, a, is the program director at Democracy Fund Voice and a veteran of Capitol Hill, working as chief of staff for more than two decades, um, including for Congressman Christopher Shays of Connecticut, Mike Turner and Bobby Schillings of Illinois, and Andy Barr of Kentucky. I'll now turn the time over to Betsy. Thanks, Emily. And thank you to our host today, Cato. Institute. Um, I am Betsy Wright Hawkins. Um, I work with Democracy Fund and Democracy Fund Voice. And I will tell you that when we planned this event, we knew it would be relevant. We hoped it would be relevant. I don't think we could have possibly anticipated how relevant to the news cycle it would be today. Um, and in addition, first of all, to thanking our panelists and our research team, um, I especially want to thank Cato for hosting, Mindy Finn, Alex Lundry, Patrick Ruffini, Kelsey Jarrett, and Lisa Dropkin, our research partners at Echelon, Edge Research, and Emily Eakins here at Cato. And I also would like, if I could, to introduce a few of my colleagues from Democracy Fund Voice. Shriek Gopal, our Vice President of Strategy, Impact, and Learning. Shriek, I saw you come in. There you are in the back. Um, Tom Glazier, who is our Program Director for um, Media and the Public Square and is particularly concerned about media and, and issues of civility, and also Adam Ambrosi, who I think I see in the back, who's our program director for elections. Um, I don't know if any of you saw the article in the Washington Post this morning, which profiled a family from Corbin, Kentucky, 
um, who the author described as among the many different kinds of American families trying to share the elbow space of one country. If we are going to bring our country together and move beyond the divisive rhetoric that has characterized politics in recent years, but particularly the election cycle of 2016, we need to understand the anxieties that people are experiencing and find ways to open up a constructive dialogue. That is what Democracy Fund and Democracy Fund Voice are all about. While fears run deep for many, the findings of this research should give us reason, I believe, to be optimistic for the future. When we initially conceived this research, it was an effort to better understand the American electorate and especially how populism and nativism have emerged in our politics. The information we'll discuss today is really just the first step in a larger project to understand and engage voters who feel like strangers in their own country. Democracy Fund Voice is a nonpartisan organization that is committed to helping America build a stronger, healthier democracy. We look forward to continuing this project to help America become a more unified and engaged country. And thank you again for being here and for your work and for hosting us here at Cato. to introduce our first panel that will be discussing the results of um, the new report, Strangers, Stranger in My Own Country. Um, first, I'd like to introduce Mindy Finn here on the left, is a civic um, um, entrepreneur and an advisor to Democracy Fund Voice, is the former vice presidential running mate with Evan McMullen running on the independent ticket, and a former strategist for the RNC, NRSC, Mitt Romney, and George W. Bush. To Mindy's right, we have Alex Lundry, who's the co-founder and chief data scientist of Deep Root Analytics, and he also ran analytics for Mitt Romney and Jeb Bush. Next, we have Lisa Dropkin, a principal at Edge Research and a former research director at C-Web and a vice president at the Melman Group. And then to my left, we have Patrick Ruffini, a co-founder at Echelon Insights, founder of Engage, a leading digital agency, and a former digital strategist for the RNC and George W. Bush. To start with, I wanted to turn the time over to Mindy, who will be presenting the main findings from the research report, Stranger in My Own Country. So thank you, Emily. Thanks, everyone, for being here. And thank you again to the Cato Institute for hosting us today. As Betsy Hawking said, uh, Democracy Fund Voice conceived of this research last summer, and then we published it today to try to understand what was happening in this particular socio-political moment in the country and what is driving rising populism, nationalism, and nativism. We decided to do two, three pieces of research. The first, qualitative, in-depth interviews in a couple places in the country with people who met our screen that had, they had kind of nativist tendencies. Um, the first place we went to was outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with people who were, this was last summer, leaning towards voting for Donald Trump, but not exclusively. And then we went to Wilmington, North Carolina, where we did uh, interviews with individuals who were stronger Trump supporters. They had, they, had, they had voted for Donald Trump in the primary, and they also met our nativist screen. 
We proceeded to do a survey in October, a large-scale national survey where we asked a series of questions on issues of race, immigration, attitudes towards Islam, America and the direction of America. And then we did a media test where we, we noted that while there was divergent patterns of views on some of these other aspects of other anxieties around race and immigration, that concerns about Islam and, and Muslim Americans were particularly acute. And so we chose uh, those attitudes to do a bit of a test and, and came up with a series of media treatments. They were publicly avail available treatments that we showed to uh, respondents to determine whether there was opportunities to educate uh, or shift attitudes based on exposure to certain treatments. The research team has already been introduced. I click through here. Okay. We did. We worked with um, Alex Lundry as a research lead and consultant. Edge Research on the interviews, Echelon Insights on the survey, and then Cato Institute and Emily Eakins with the Cato Institute performed the media test. There we go. So some key findings that I'll start with, and then I'll, I'll go into some of the data. We found that many Trump supporters in our research feel a nostalgia for a country that may have existed, but, but they may, that they may never have actually experienced, that Make America Great Again worked for a reason, that many Trump supporters in our research have a great fear of decline. They feel alienated from government, community, and the new America with which they don't feel comfortable. Ideals of the melting pot, the American dream, and American generosity of spirit continue to exist among all Americans. The strength of these ideals is being tested, though, by the current climate. Many Americans surveyed expressed positive views of immigrants' work ethic, but have concerns that immigrants are no longer willing to learn English, feel patriotic, or assimilate into American culture. Concerns about Muslims is distinct from the concerns about racial tensions, and it exists outside of class, education, party, or income, that Muslims are perceived as a threat to many respondents' personal values and a way of life. And finally, that the right message can create statistically significant movement on key attitudes among the most concerned and anxious groups. In summary, that these, these findings to us were a bit of a mixed bag. There are some contradictions within these findings. And so I'll dig in a little bit further on what the data actually showed. So this question of how people view America and, and where we're headed, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? People who work hard and do the right thing can't get ahead in America anymore. This was responded to affirmatively by many of our respondents among all Americans. You can see it's 45%. Among Republicans and Trump supporting Republicans in particular, it was 61%. In doing this survey and in our interviews, what we've decided to do is divide this out. What started to emerge was four aspects of cultural anxiety. Views about America generally and the direction we're headed, immigration, race, and Islam. On Americanism, the way we started all of our interviews, our in-depth interviews, is we had people bring in, some of these topics are clearly sensitive. And it's why we did individual interviews versus focus groups. And it's why we had to treat them a bit delicately to, to really unearth and get to the bottom of people's feelings. We had people bring in objects and pictures that spoke to them about how they felt about America, what was right about America in the direction that we were headed, and what was wrong. Those findings shaped our survey and also shaped how we divided these four aspects of anxiety. Americanism, this is from the survey. Do you, disagree, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? 
Our, our society is changing so fast that it can be difficult to keep up. Strong agreement from Republicans who did, did and did not support Trump in the Republican primary. Whites with a high school education or less agree at similar rates regardless of party. When it, which of the following do you think should be requirements for someone to be an American? And we had respondents check all that applied. Among white voters surveyed, patriotism, speaking English, and a belief in personal freedom stand out as requirements to be an American. On immigration, the question of our immigrant, and then as I said, there's some conflicting views here, contradictory views among the same respondents. Our immigrants today, despite believing that immigrants are hardworking, Trump primary voters do not believe immigrants are willing to assimilate or feel patriotic towards America. But as a whole, our respondents did believe that Americans were hardworking and entrepreneurial. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? I'm concerned that current anti-immigrant sentiment will lead to more violence and hate crimes against immigrant communities. Two-fifths of Trump primary supporters are concerned about violence against immigrants. But this is 17% below the national average of all Americans surveyed, who with 57% of all Americans are concerned about this. On race, majorities of Americans surveyed agreed that we should follow the golden rule and treat others as we'd like to be treated, including people of different races, cultures, and countries and that race shouldn't matter as much as it does. But also, some voters believe they are making too many sacrifices. So when asked, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? People like me are asked to make too many sacrifices that benefit people of another race. Trump primary voters are much more likely to agree that they are asked to make too many sacrifices that benefit people of another race. When it comes to Islam, Many voters think that Islam is incompatible with American values. This came out within our interviews uh, as well as in our survey. Do agree or disagree that Islam is compatible with American values? Two-thirds of Republicans surveyed, Trump GOP and, non -Trump, and those who supported other candidates in the primary, say it's not compatible with a stark divide amongst whites along educational lines, although even whites with college degrees are split on this issue. Some examples of what we heard in our interviews on this topic. Um, perceptions of Islam and women. So a quote here about the Muslim religion has kept the men in power and the women as slaves. Women to them are just as low, if not lower than dogs. To, so how can they assimilate into our society? Um, these are other people speaking. I'm, I'm speaking others quotes, <laughs> just to make that clear. Perceptions of Islam and violence. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not sure that all beliefs think of life as being good here on earth. I think some beliefs are kind of of the religion where the more destruction that you can do here, the better. Uh, and then perceptions of Islam and Western life. There's no problem with heritage, no issues with heritage, um, but to come here and fly a different flag, that's to me you're trying to impress or make the United States something that, you, that we, were we were originally not. You got Muslim communities now that are trying to adhere to their own, again, nothing wrong with heritage or customs or anything, but they're trying to impress their own beliefs. A challenge for American unity in terms of our views on Americanism and social connectedness among all Americans surveyed, so this is across all Americans, Clinton supporters uh, were somewhat more isolated from Trump supporters than the reverse, but both were isolated. 60% of Clinton supporters say none of their five closest friends is a Trump supporter. Majorities or near majorities of all surveyed say that all five of their closest friends share their race, educational status, or candidate choice. 64% of all surveyed say that none of their five closest friends is an immigrant to the United States. And Americans are more likely to have friends from different religions or income levels than they are to have friends of a different race. Also, uh, 
In terms of the, when we ask the question of how well do the following statements describe you, I seek out information from people I don't agree with. Americans surveyed are stuck in information silos, as many don't seek information out from others that they don't agree with. And finally, on this media test, as I mentioned, we had several treatments that we exposed. And we found that these treatments as a whole, um, there was actually a, a statistically significant shift in positive perceptions of Islam and Muslim Americans based on seeing these treatments, with some performing better than others. So certain video treatments we also showed on op-ed had large and significant effects on attitudes towards Muslim Americans. They improved feelings toward Muslims and reduced nativism and ethnocentrism. And video ads, although video ads on refugees were less impactful overall, overall, they did slightly raise the number of refugees Americans were willing to accept. We showed media treatments, and then we asked a series of questions. Uh, results suggest treatments that conveyed the following were key to improving attitudes towards Muslims and reducing nativism. So these were attributes in the, in the treatments that shifted perceptions the most. That Muslims in the US think of themselves as Americans. Islam is compatible with the American way of life. Muslims want to join the American way of life rather than change it. Muslims are relatable. And also when we showed the harmful consequences of prejudice. In that particular case, showing that somebody was the victim of bullying and attacks on Facebook. Um, that made people more empathetic and, and have more positive views of Muslims. The treatment with the most impact across all the groups was a YouTube video from Peace House that depicted young Muslim Americans reading, this is the one I just referred to, mean Facebook comments about a mosque that burned down in Florida. What we took away from this is that from a messaging standpoint, showing the harmful emotional effects of prejudice, depicting Muslims as regular young Americans, and that Muslims in the video actually saying, I am an American, drove some of that shift. As you can see here, the treatments had the effect of reversing attitudes among Republicans who said they would not support Trump in the general election. So those were GOP who were not planning to support Trump. We don't know whether they did or not, but they were not planning to. And even if a majority had an unfavorable view of Muslims in the control group, the treatment resulted in a majority gaining a positive view of Muslims. And I should make clear, and I should have said this at the outset, um, our goal with this research is to understand. You know, we found as we presented this to a few people in close quarters that some have said it made them quite uncomfortable. Um, and so we do want to make clear that we were seeking to understand this obviously doesn't represent the views um, necessarily of the researchers or certainly of Democracy Fund Voice. And with that, we'll go to our panel. There's so much fascinating data in this report. Um, and I'm hoping that we can use this panel to kind of synthesize some of this data and the takeaways from it. Um, to start with, I wanted to ask, um, you know, Alex, if, if you could synthesize, you know, what are the main concerns that people have about immigration? That one slide we saw, we noticed that when it comes to um, our, our immigrants hardworking, that actually wasn't the point of disagreement. Um, even the strong Trump supporters, the, not all Trump voters, but that constituency of strong, vote, strong Trump supporters, um, they thought that immigrants were hardworking, but they were more concerned about support for the flag and patriotism and, most importantly, speaking English. Um, so what did we learn, kind of, if we could synthesize about those kind of the underlying concerns about immigration? Yeah, I think in immigration in particular, but also across each of the four kind of vectors that we discussed, what was most interesting was really the, the, you know, the dichotomous views that people could hold simultaneously. I mean, that's one of the things that makes humans amazing is we can have these contradictory views at the same time. 
but there was a sense that there was a sense of pride in America's immigrant heritage, and there was a, r- a real sense of power in, in the immigrant story of the United States. And I think people very, mu- very easily, the people we spoke to very easily can speak about the hardworking and entrepreneurial mindset and work ethic of immigrant po- populations that come to the United States. But at the same time, reflecting the title of the report, they sense something different about immigrants today. They have a perspective that it is different from this 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 time that they that they as we said in our report many of them probably didn't even experience there's a sense that they are not assimilating as quickly um, there's a sense that uh, that they aren't showing respect for the country respect for um, our heritage and so you know to us that that notion of assimilation seemed to be one of the key driving factors of perception uh, that with lack of assimilation comes a disrespect for the United States. Even though they want, they believe we are an immigrant country, they, they like, the, uh, they, they buy into that story, uh, they don't feel like they're seeing it happening right now. Mm-hmm. I guess I would just add, you know, to that in a qualitative way, one thing that was very interesting is that, you know, everybody we spoke to had an immigrant story in their own family. But that mythology was very much in the past and and highly romanticized. My great-grandmother came here and spoke English. No, probably not, you know, (laughs) probably not. Um, But that's kind of how they they think of their own story, was that they had discarded the life they had left behind and completely embraced America upon coming here. And just the way we live today is so different than that. It's not, you know, it's not possible. You see people in transition as they become American, and they're witnessing that around them. And in combination with the ways that they're feeling put out, it's just another example of a country that's changing around them. Right. Uh, And I I also think it's interesting to point out the policy implications. Um, In the sense of people are pretty favorable, you ask in various... uh, uh, various treatments on Im- on immigration reform and the idea of either a pathway to citizenship or a pathway to legal work status. We asked the que- we split sampled and asked the question both ways, and generally people were pretty favorable to both of those things. Um, more so on the path to legal work work status, and that was something that moved uh, more Republicans into giving a uh, pro immigration reform answer. Um, but simultaneously, to building on Alex's point, they were they also held views um, that were apprehensive about um, the role of current the current role of immigrants in our society, and the sense that this uh, acceptance of uh, a greater a role for legal immigration, resolving uh, you know resolving the immigration issue, uh, may be contingent upon issues such as um, speaking English. Um, by a 15-point margin in our survey, people um, were bothered, uh, said they were bothered when they come, came into contact uh, with immigrants who don't speak English. Um, upwards of 70% also said it was a problem that you know, immigrants or illegal immigrants are receiving um, government benefits of some kind. And the perception of whether they are or not, um, to the extent that they are, that is a problem, and that was a, that was a perspective shared across the ide- the ideological spectrum. So people start out. It's not like we need to, you know, uh, you know, uh, do a bunch of messaging to get people into it being pro-immigration on policy. Um, people start out uh, from that perspective, but there's a sense that it is contingent upon certain conditions being met. 
You know, something I thought that was really interesting, um, interesting <clears throat> in the data, and Mindy, you showed one of the slides, which is um, what attributes are necessary or are requirements for being an, an American. And so you showed the results among those who had attended college, um, those who were high school graduates. And among those who were high school graduates, I think the first one was um, speaking English, patriotism, and respect for the flag. And then third on that list was a belief in personal freedom. But it was flipped for college graduates, where college graduates, number one, was a belief in personal freedom, then followed by respect for the flag and speaking English. I thought that was kind of an interesting juxtaposition between the two. Um, I wanted to delve a little bit deeper in something Alex mentioned about the conflict. And I know, Mindy, you, know, you and I have talked about this as well, is that the conflict that many people feel in that America, we all believe this is the idea of the melting pot. Um, from its founding, America is um, a melting pot, and that most most all Americans believe in the golden rule, but then at the same time, there, are, there is this resistance and this concern over changing demographics and immigration. Um, so how did you, like, what did you see in the data about how people are grappling with this conflict? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So what we heard a lot in interviews um, was, which heartened, you know, was, was heartening, was people ex expressing that they really idealized that we could all live in harmony and sometimes they would point to their own communities and say, you know, even on race, if it was a, someone who was a white person, they would say, I have a black neighbor who I'm really close and friendly with, but yet they still felt that um, racism exists and it exists more than it should have. And in some ways they seem to blame the other race for that. And we saw that in the survey as well. Um, they feel that they are in a better position to determine what is racism. We didn't include this slide in that presentation, but we have it in our larger study, in that whites in America feel that they're better positioned to identify what is racism, and blacks in America feel like they're better positioned to identify what is racism. Um, and, and so, and, and they're both bothered by the fact that racism exists, and they, and they seem to be flabbergasted of why, over why we can't live in harmony. And at the same time, in those same interviews, would express fears about people of different races, um, would express uh, negative feelings towards, you know, if it was whites, for example. Um, we were interviewing people in North Carolina right after there had been a, a shooting. And, and they were very angry and kind of blaming, um, you know, African Americans for their own, own plight. This is, you know, what we make of this. I mean, it really is, I think, why, as Betsy said, at the, at the forefront, we are encouraged is that people feel, um, you know, they, they want to do, they, they want to live in harmony. They don't want to have these feelings. They want, um, they want to get to a better place. Uh, I think what they're feeling is that is very discouraged that we're not able to get over that, that boundary. The one other thing that I would say that came up a lot in terms of race is people who, recognized that racism was a much bigger problem for their parents and would actually look at and describe interactions that their parents would have or that their parents making statements that they weren't allowed to invite friends over of a different race. So someone who is white, they weren't allowed to bring a white black friend to the, to the home and that, you know, horrified by that, saying, you know, I, I would never let that happen and I actually hope it's better for my, my child. So there was definitely a recognition that we've made progress and that's a good thing. Patrick, um, you've mentioned that Trumpism is more popular than Donald Trump the candidate or Donald Trump the president. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means and just tell us more about what that means? Sure. I mean, if you if you really kind of boil down what his message is, whether or not you sort of wrap it in the symbols of his campaign or not, or just sort of express it in more in broader terms, you know, his message turns out to be surprisingly popular and much more popular than maybe people inside the Beltway might imagine, um, it turns out. Um, um, so we asked this question, you know, uh, this is one I keep kind of going back to, and it shows a fairly narrow divide, um, so it's not overwhelming. Um, but this idea, we just asked the, the question of, what do you agree with more? Uh, make America great again, or do you agree with America is already great, which is something Hillary Clinton said. And it was something a lot of, you know, people around, you know, here were saying, like, you know, why, uh, how could he say we're not a great country? More people um, agreed with the Make America Great Again assessment. Um, Democrats as well as? Uh, not, uh, not, all, uh, not a majority of Democrats. But a, a significant it did split share. a significant share. Um, and then you followed up uh, with, what does Make America Great Again mean? Uh, you know, does it mean uh, that we're going to go back to the 1950s, racism, sexism, or does it mean you know, a simpler, better time when uh, you know, the country was more respected? And by 60 to 25%, um, people agreed with the assessment that it, it means going back to a better a time when the country was actually great. It was actually better. We also tested, um, you know, we asked across 17 different dimensions, um, everything from crime to morality to uh, economic opportunity. Is the country better, simply, is the country better off than when you were growing up? Um, on 14 of 17 different dimensions, um, people rated the country as being worse off today than, than, than when they were growing up. And we've seen a lot of controversy over President Trump's comments in the inaugural address uh, of the words American carnage. Um, last night he tweeted, you know, we may send in the feds into Chicago to resolve the crime situation there. On the crime question, it's 62 to 14 percent um, believe crime is worse today than it was uh, when they were growing up despite the fact <laughs> that crime has been cut in half since, and that is objectively not a true statement, um, probably over most people's lifetimes, and over the last 20 years, crime has been cut in half. But the perception is by an over four to one margin that it has gotten worse. Wow. Yeah, thank you for unpacking, you know, what does it mean, make America great again? I think that it hasn't been clear what it means. His supporters knew exactly what it meant. And you said a majority of the respondents in the survey said yes. So a lot of people know what it means, but I think it could mean different things to different people. And that's probably why it was so effective. Well, and what was amazing to me was, was um, the EDGE team did this amazing exercise that Mindy alluded to, where people had to bring to the interviews images or items that reminded them of... <clears throat> what was great about America in one instance, but also what was, what was bad about America in another. And the, and the images that they chose about what was great about America invariably came from the past. Uh, there were pictures of the 1950s. There were pictures of grandparents. There were, it, it, it was really stunning. This nostalgia theme. Pictures really, of Ellis Island. Uh, Ellis Island. <laughs> the, the nostalgia theme just emerged in, in full cloth. It, it, it was really stunning and it really resonated with us. Why Make America Great Again worked these people really felt that there was a better, simpler time. And a lot of it was about related to America's position in the world. Okay. It certainly wasn't related, as, as Patrick said, to you know, perceived uh, decline in terms of you know, relationship between the sexes or, or race. But it, but, it, but it also had to do with a, a, a notion about community, a notion about mm -hmm. family values, 
um, an, exp an expression of religious belief on a regular basis in your daily life. I mean, we, we didn't talk too much about this, but it's in the full report, that the segment of this electorate is feeling, you know, put out in many ways mm -hmm. and hushed. They talked about self-censoring. They talked about avoiding things in social media, not saying what they really think. And some of that had to do with expressing values that they thought were maybe too conservative or you know, outside the mainstream. And there was an aspect of make America great again means I get to say what I want again. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of that. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people um, equate yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's sort of, uh, you know, you know, in some of the criticism of this, there's sort of an equation of, um, you know, I think people believe simultaneously they can hold traditionalist views on race, um, and by this I mean, you know, uh, you know, this idea we asked, um, uh, you know, uh, is it okay? You know, are, is having some stereotypes okay? Is that a rational thing? And that was very strongly agreed to by, you know, kind of all different races, all different demographics. And there's a sense that those more traditional or conservative views on race can coexist with absolutely having absolutely no animosity mm -hmm. to other racial groups. Um, and overwhelmingly, you, you know, the sense of, you know, reverse discrimination now being um, something we heard again and again, uh, reverse discrimination being now as big of a problem as racism against minorities, um, a political correctness being um, by 66 to 16%, I think, a political correctness being a problem uh, that is growing almost as big as racism itself. So people kind of feel, despite the progress we've made, they feel kind of put upon mm -hmm. by, by the dialogue. And their, their, their perception that they couldn't say things that they wanted to say, it's not that these people wanted to say, you know, exorbitantly racist or sexist things. <laughs> it was mostly around religion, that they, could, they didn't feel as though they could publicly talk about their religion. Um, it was also as though they couldn't publicly talk about just conservative viewpoints and, and opinions. And back to the race thing, they didn't feel that they could openly talk about what they see as very natural and meaningful differences between genders or, or, or races. <clears throat> And so it, it isn't that these people necessarily want to be, you know, to be saying terrible things. They, they just feel as though they cannot talk about their own values in a, in, in a meaningful way anymore, in an open way anymore. I, I really am glad that we've talked about this because I feel like we just, we kind of unpacked what political correctness means. At the beginning of the primary campaign, a lot of the, the supporters that were immediately drawn to Donald Trump talked a lot about how he'll tell it like it is, and he and that they didn't like political correctness. I think our survey found that that was one of their top concerns. What does political correctness mean exactly? I think differs from person to person, and I think Alex and uh, the whole panel, I think, has really kind of laid out what that means for many of the, the kind of the core Trump constituency. Um, I also wanted to mention that several of the panelists have mentioned the full report, that certain <laughs> things are mentioned in the full report. That can be found online at the Dem Democracy Fund Voice website. Um, so if you are interested, you can take a look at it. Um, I wanted to ask one more question. Lisa, you've talked about um, empathy bubbles and how um, we kind of find ourselves in a situation where we don't really meet a lot of people who think differently um, than ourselves. Um, I was curious, you know, what, what you thought about that in your interviews, but then also I think we, we asked a little bit about that in the survey as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, th this idea that we live in a bubble, I mean, I, how many people would probably say that about themselves? You know, we do, many of us live in different bubbles. And, you know, folks for the most part that we interviewed don't know a lot of people who are different from them. It's borne out in the survey. And it raised real questions about how much empathy 
you can have for other people. It, when you took the perspective of, I don't really know anybody close to me in my life who's African American, it was easy to fall back and look at the, the shootings or what's been happening and saying, you know, I, I don't know anything about structural racism. You're, you're, you're telling me that first responders, heroes, th these are systematically bad guys. It was so easy for them to fall back on the response of communities and focus on the worst actors, you know, in protests to sort of, you know, distance themselves from having to, you know, accept any part in the racism that might be happening in our country today. And the best conversations, some of the most interesting conversations were with two different women who had become close, personal friends with other African-American women. And they were struggling. They were the ones who were the most conflicted about how they felt about Black Lives Matter, about, uh, you know, one woman talked about uh, having a brief discussion about Donald Trump with her friend, and her friend just said to her, oh, he is a racist. And it completely challenged her thinking that she had about Trump. And that opportunity to connect, you know, and create empathy or, or, or have any perspective on these issues is so critical, and we're not having it. Th yeah. This to me is one of the most um, profound kind of things that our research is wrapped in is this notion of the contact hypothesis, right? This comes out of sociology. It's something we're very familiar with in, in kind of campaign and advocacy literature in that the, the, the more you are exposed to somebody who holds these alternative views to something you hold, the more likely you are to change. We've seen this most dramatically in the numbers around the number of people who have a close friend, family member, or colleague that's gay and the change in uh, attitudes towards gay marriage. The number of people who know gay people has just gone up uh, massively over the last uh, few decades, along with changing attitudes towards gay marriage. But this is really reflected in the media test that we did, which I think you know, is really interesting because ultimately what we were doing with the media test was we were showing to, uh, to uh, these respondents media that, that humanized, that, that Americanized, that, that showed them that these were real people who were behind the, the receiving end of um, you know, racist behavior or xenophobic behavior and so on, and that it really changed attitudes. Just being exposed to that was responsible for major shifts in attitudes in, in, um, in our surveys. I think once the reality is, is, made, uh, is brought home to people that um, these attitudes can sometimes have negative consequences for other people and other groups, it makes people think twice. Um, when it's abstract, um, you know, when it's, um, you, know, uh, you know, whether it's a campus protest or things that, that seem to be protests that are disconnected from uh, personal experience, then, you know, it's easy to denounce that as political correctness. Um, but I think as we saw in the media test uh, very clearly, that once it's really brought home that these attitudes may have harmful consequences if taken to an extreme. And there, you know, I think there was a question up there about, um, you know, are you concerned about potential violence arising from, uh, you know, these attitudes out there? Um, that really does make people think twice um, when you can actually show people what the, the, those consequences are. Yeah. Um, thank you, that dovetails perfectly in kind of the last question I wanted to ask and put it to Mindy, which is if you were to synthesize all this research, what do we, how, where do we go from here? What do, we, what do we make of this research? Yeah, well I think we need to take seriously the fact that people have real cultural anxieties and conflicted views about immigration and race and Islam. Um, those, are, those are very real, and they 
they need to be understood. And to Patrick's point, which she raised, is that Trumpism and this potentially these, um, not necessarily the policy agenda, because they didn't get into policies, but these sentiments that were raised throughout the campaign are things that they're more popular than the man himself. Um, you often heard among our respondents in interviews these sentiments, but then if we asked about Donald Trump, for example, they'd say, well, I don't know what's up with him. You know, I don't know why he's, he says some of the things that he says. I don't particularly like that. I don't think he can be a unifying president when he says those things. People should feel free to say those things, but I don't think we should have our president saying those things. Um, but, but those sentiments are quite real and can't be ignored, and, and they're not going to be shifted easily. We saw with the media test that when it came to Islam, something that people just do not have a lot of familiarity with or know much about, that that exposure did shift their attitudes. It did make them more positive. At the same time, in looking for opportunities to shift perceptions, we're challenged by the fact that many of this segment of people that we focused on are low information. They don't consume a lot of media. They're not exposed to a lot of people that are different. They don't travel much, you know, so that we're really challenged there in terms of how we bring the country together and potentially uh, try, to, try, to, try to educate and potentially shift perceptions, you know, or, or connect perception with reality. And the third thing is that while, um, you know, and we're going to get into a policy discussion on the next panel, there is a lot of support for policy and reforms on things like immigration, crime, and other areas, that there's not a lot of appetite for those changes delving into uh, creating violence or infringing on people's rights, that there really is a fine line. There's not sweeping support for let's addressing people's fears while, um, while creating other problems in terms of, if you look at the media test, for example, that it will lead to more bullying or violence or those kinds of things. I just wanted to add one data point to this. Um, your sur the survey had found that 60% of Clinton Trump's, uh, excuse me, of Clinton supporters say that none of their five closest friends voted for Donald Trump. And you also found that majorities of just about every group, so that means Republicans, Democrats, Independents, um, said that all five of their closest friends um, had the same educational status as they did, the same race, and the same uh, vote for president. And so to kind of back to Mindy's point, it's really hard for us to understand the perspectives of other people when most all of our close friends don't share those views. So I think there is kind of a call to action in that making the effort to understand different perspectives, really, truly trying to do that and not impugning other people's motives, but really trying to understand where they're coming from will probably make us better equipped to have a productive dialogue. Um, I think we have time for a few questions. Um, if we can open it up for Q&A. Um, someone will bring you a microphone. Um, if you could please keep the question brief and, make sh and, and end it with a question mark. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether other libertarians have brought up the you know this possible point uh, that the religious and social right is showing hypocrisy when they combine opposition to abortion and birth control with opposition to immigration because the, they want everyone to be open to creating more life yet they consider the life that has been created a burden and want to build steel and concrete barriers to control the movement of that life which costs 
far more than the birth control barriers they are sort of morally indignant about? Has that been brought up by other libertarians? Um, I, I don't think that came up in our research. It didn't, it didn't naturally come out in the in-depth interviews that we saw. Um, so I, we don't have a good answer on that because we just didn't see it. What do Trump supporters want now? <laughs> want to make America great again. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do Trump supporters want now? I mean, I, I, I think that's probably self-evident from what we've seen here. But I, I think, but not to be too glib about it, but that is ultimately at the root of what we saw here, in that a lot of these Trump supporters feel like strangers in their own country. They, they feel like they've woken in this, in this country, in a society that they don't understand. Things are changing far too quickly, and they want to, they want to either go back or slow things down and, have a, have, um, and, and encourage policies that somehow make the country more familiar to them again. And so I think that that's manifested in a lot of the policy decisions that we've seen over the last few days and that have been centerpieces of the campaign. But I think at a more fundamental sociological, philosophical level, it's this notion of, I, I don't feel I understand this country anymore. And, and to add to that, I think also it's a sense of validation. Yeah. Um, kind of irrespective of the policies that are actually carried out, I think what Trump has delivered is validation of feelings that many Americans have, but they're not allowed to express or to share. And so they felt like he offered them validation for who they are. Um, so even if he doesn't make good on some of these promises, he could maintain a lot of that support by continuing the rhetoric of validation. I would just add great. to that the dignity. Um, and Lisa talked about the different objects and images people brought in and, and Alex did as well that showed families together at the dinner t table. So this notion that we are more, that family is, is valued and that traditional families valued, religion, they can practice their religion freely. And also one that we haven't mentioned yet is the military. A lot, of, a lot of imagery about the military and this notion that we've gotten away from a place where we celebrate our military, whether that's true or not, there was a lot of feeling about that from people particularly who had served. So you see that, that Donald Trump in his rhetoric and actions is responding to that a bit as he emphasizes celebration of our veterans um, and certainly as he talks about you know, religion and mentions God and, and Merry Christmas. Um, so I think we'll turn the time over to panel two. Um, Alex Narasta, my colleague here at the Cato Institute, will be moderating this panel where they'll be discussing the implications of this research on public policy. Well, good evening and welcome back. My name is Alex Narasta. I'm the immigration policy analyst here at Cato. As you can understand, uh, today has been a very busy day for me, so it's really a pleasure to take a break <laughs> and to moderate a wonderful panel like this uh, with you all. What we're going to do is I'm going to very briefly introduce the panel and then lead with a quick introduction, and then we can get down uh, to business. On the far end, we have uh, Rui Texera, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. He's the co-editor of the States of Change, Democracy, and Democracy Project, and the author of many books uh, that I will not list right now, but I highly recommend you check them out. Uh, Rob, next, we have Robert P. Jones, uh, CEO and co-founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. He serves as co-chair of the National Steering Committee, 
uh, Committee of, uh, to Rate Religion and Politics section of the American Academy of Religion, member of several editorial books and the author of several books as well. Uh, next, immediately to my left, we have uh, Henry Olson, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, former Vice President and Director of the National Research Initiative at the American Enterprise Institute, and Vice President of the Manhattan Institute, President of the Commonwealth Foundation, is about to publish a long-awaited new book titled Ronald Reagan, New Deal Republican, out this June. And last but not least, Mayara Nagaz, uh, in the middle, Executive Director of ISPU, the Institute for Social Policy Understanding. She's a former senior project uh, senior program officer for Mary Stopes International and executive director of Wings Guatemala. Now, the populist nationalist surge that we've seen in the United States with Donald Trump is not unique to this country. We've seen this happen in numerous countries around the world relatively recently. The obvious example is the United Kingdom with Brexit. Uh, sort of a surprise vote. They voted to leave uh, the European Union. Uh, but you also see uh, certain right-wing or populist nationalist parties surging across Europe. So in Hungary, they're in power right now. You see certain movements in Greece. And uh, perhaps most worrying or uh, to a lot of people is uh, in France with Marine Le Pen as well as in Germany. You see a lot of surge in these parties. But it's also not unique to today. We've had these types of movements and surges in the past in the United States. Sometimes they fizzled out. They didn't really result in too much new policy, like uh, with the Know Nothing movement. They got kind of interrupted by um, both the rise of the Republican Party as well as the Civil War sort of interrupted that movement to an extent. But in other times, we have seen this nationalism or nativism rise to the front, to the fore, and enact serious policy changes, such as in the 1920s, when the United States closed off uh, immigration from Europe put in place high quotas uh, with the intent of limiting Southern and Eastern European immigration, specifically Jews and Catholics, uh, as well as basically blocking off all uh, Asian and African immigration. I have here as an example a wonderful book, uh, well, not a wonderful book, but a wonderful example uh, written in 1926 called The Melting Pot Mistake. Mm. Uh, <laughs> this was a common sentiment at the time. Um, Henry Pratt Fairchild wrote it. Uh, basically arguing that the new immigrants, the Italians, Catholics, Eastern Europeans, Jews, would never be able to assimilate and become Americans. That they had racial, ethnic, social characteristics that would prevent them from ever being part of the fold. Now, I think we know, based by the composition of this panel, as well as almost everybody you've met in your life in the United <laughs> States, that this turned out not to be true. However, these... Um, that was, blocking off immigration was a result of that surge at that time, and it looks like in the United States we may be on the verge with the election of Donald Trump to uh, recreating some of these policies right now. So I want to talk just very briefly, um, get ideas about the panel, about what policies are most likely to be put in place under a um, Trump populist nationalist style administration. Well, um, he does seem to be intent on building this wall, so I suppose we'll, we'll see something like that. Um, I'm not exactly sure. He'll probably try to do something about the refugee inflow. I mean, I just, but, but will, will it go as, as far as like deporting millions of immigrants, which I think is something he also sort of promised or implied he would do and has some support among 
Trump, uh, you know, sort of his hardcore supporters. I'm less sure that that's going to happen. I think that's an outlier. But, I, you know, I could be wrong. I hope I'm not. All right, we're going down the line. Yeah, all right, all right, I'm next. all right, great. One after another. <laughs> uh, so, so one piece I'd love to just kind of uh, put an exclamation mark on, uh, a little self-interested. So I, uh, I had a book come out this year called The End of White Christian America. It may seem a little bit weird given the election outcome, but <laughs> stay with me. Uh, you know, I, well, one of the things I think um, that we heard in the, in the panel one was the role that religion played in people's anxieties, right? That they can't say things they think they should say. They can't say things they think the Bible teaches. Uh, and they're, they're being judged, they're being sort of shouted down as racist, like those kinds of things. Um, and one of the new things that we're dealing with now, as opposed to like the 1920s, which I think is really important, is that we, the, the demographic changes in the country really stemming from immigration policy changes in the 1960s, where we opened up more non-European uh, immigration, and we're now seeing the results of that in the country. And one of the things that's happened, in the, just in the last decade, during Barack Obama's presidency, we moved from being a country that was a majority white Christian country to a country that is a minority white Christian country. We were 54% white and Christian at the beginning of Barack Obama's uh, tenure as president. We are 43% white and Christian as a nation uh, at the end of uh, Barack Obama's uh, presidency. And I would say that one of the things feeling the anxiety is, you know, it's one thing to be open and welcoming when you feel your own sense of place is secure. It's something else, I think, to be open and welcoming when you feel like your own sense of place is insecure. And I think that's part of what's going on, is that this sense of insecurity, this sense that the country is changing very, very fast, right? And, and almost like you don't really know how, when it's going to stop, and this feeling of things being out of control. So I, I want to just kind of put an exclamation part on that piece, and, the, and that's driving this sense of nostalgia and even a sense of kind of tribal identity driven by religion, right? And it's this sense to kind of go back to when the tribe was kind of dominant and when the tribe kind of was the country um, in a way, this kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, myth of America. And so I think that's part of what's driving it. On the policy front, I mean, the one thing I'd, I'd you know, like to say is, that I think I'd like to accent here is that what's notable to me is that um, it's always been true, like since we've been, we have polled on this question, I think, uh, probably 80, 90 surveys uh, since 2013 to now, we have always found about six in 10 Americans actually supporting a path to citizenship for the immigrants who are in the country uh, today. Only about one in five Americans and only about uh, three in 10 Republicans support deporting uh, immigrants that are in the country today. You wouldn't know that from the politics, uh, but that's the actual public opinion landscape uh, in the country. Uh, and so it'd be, well, it'd be interesting to see, you know, if we had a populist movement that's going after the will of the people, um, how that plays out. Uh, but on the other things about building a wall border uh, along the border of Mexico, preventing Syrian refugees, banning Muslims uh, from c countries, these are things that are basically partisan fights, where he has supermajorities of Republicans uh, and supermajorities of his own supporters in the um, uh, in the primaries uh, supporting him, and you know only like a quarter of Democrats uh, supporting him, and less than a majority of Independents uh, supporting him. One final note uh, is that on immigration what his supporters look like is actually the Tea Party uh, on immigration, right? Uh, the kind of hard line on immigration that we saw in the earlier Tea Party movement. Um, so just one caveat. Uh, the organization that I uh, am, have the pleasure to lead, the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, our focus is uh, solely on American Muslims. So we do research both for um, community development and also for public policy. So you'll notice that my comments focus a lot on the Muslim community, and, and that's the reason why. 
Um, so when it comes to that, when it comes to American Muslims, there's a lot of uh, fear-based as opposed to fact-based um, policy recommendations being made. Uh, the three things that we're sort of uh, concerned about in the immediate term, one is this ban on Muslims coming into the country, and this is um, set to ha happen in some form uh, probably tomorrow, um, we're hearing. Um, another concern is having some form of Muslim registry. Um, President Obama very recently just dismantled a program called the NSEERS program before he left office. And uh, that has been dismantled, but there's definitely concern that something like that will be reintroduced, despite the fact that NSEERS was uh, completely ineffective. Um, and the third thing I would highlight uh, when it comes to the Muslim community is some kind of designation of the Muslim Brotherhood as a uh, terrorist organization. This may sound good um, to some people uh, who are concerned uh, about terrorism, but in actual fact, um, it does very little to keep us safe and does far more to criminalize and um, target Muslim civil society in America. So those are the three things that, that we're sort of concerned about at the moment. Uh, to answer the question you posed directly, I think you're going to be seeing exactly what you're going to be seeing, which is to say that they won. And their pre the president uh, is going to use every lever of his power to make sure that his supporters' viewpoints are enacted into policy. And to the extent he needs legislation, I think he'll have on many things quite a willing Congress to go along because they'll all be looking, the Republicans will be looking over their shoulder. They also know that the way to, the Republican Party has not had more than 55 Senate seats since the direct election, uh, since the, the uh, Great Depression. They have, think they have an excellent chance to set a 80-year high, and that's not going to uh, happen by turning off Trump voters. So I think you're going to see much more of this. Uh, but I think what's more troubling to me is that in Washington there continues to be an expectation that the dialogue is one way. That uh, the problem in the country is that they're not listening to us and that they're not understanding the facts. And yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate being on this panel, but I no, I can infer that we now have two panels where not a single person even voted for Donald Trump in the general election. And that's a problem. So just to go off from that, I think that's a very interesting point. How, how sticky do you think these policy preferences are for Trump voters? Because the question, I always go back to Gray Davis in California. The first election I voted for, uh, if you recall, Gray Davis presided over in a huge explosion in the California budget. Uh, caused an economic problem in the state, and he was recalled. And I felt bad for him. I will probably get in trouble for saying this, but I felt bad for Gray Davis uh, because he did exactly what the voters wanted, and it didn't work, and they punished him for it. So my question is, a lot of these policies that he and his supporters want are not going to be good policies for growth. They're not going to be good policies for their pocketbooks. Um, so when the rubber hits the road, are they going to uh, realize this or double down, or does this even matter? No, I mean, I think that's, that's pretty crucial in terms of how you think about it, because I mean, in terms of what we've been discussing here on this panel, we really haven't mentioned anything besides, in a sense, cultural anxieties. Um, and yeah, there are cultural anxieties, but I think you, you shouldn't like, let that blind you to the fact there are, there are much deeper roots to people's feelings than just the country's changing and changing too fast. I think they feel 
a lot of the people who voted for Trump, and you can see this in the county-level analyses where there are big swings toward Trump. You can look at the kind of voters they were. I mean, these are people who live in places that they feel are falling apart, uh, where they feel like their kids don't have a chance, where there's drugs around. And, you know, it's like things are not going well. And, you know, it's pretty easy to connect that to other ways in which the country is changing rapidly. Um, they might be upset about those things anyway, the cultural changes, but they're much more upset because in the aftermath of a financial crisis, it's accentuated economic problems that go back decades now. They're, they're like pretty furious and they have no faith in Washington elites to, to solve these problems. So to connect it to your question, I think Trump can take action on some of these immigration-related issues and I think it will get applause from his base for a period of time, but that's not the only reason they voted for him. They, they voted for him because he was going to make America great again, which means he's going to make their lives greater again. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of this stuff he proposes to do immigration isn't really going to change their lives one bit because it's actually not going to promote uh, the kind of changes that they probably would really like to see. And I think that's, that's going to be a problem for him. It's just a question of how long it's going to bite, you know, how long it's going to take to bite. Yeah, I also think, though, it's, you have to take a look at relative change versus uh, significant change. Uh, you know, if they see improvement, I think they're much more willing to give the guy a second chance or give that movement a second chance. Uh, I mean, certainly the Great Depression was not over by 1936, but it was significantly less bad. Mm -hmm. And that gave Franklin Roosevelt a landing, you know, landslide coalition win that cemented the New Deal coalition for 30 years. Uh, so I don't think you need to see massive change. You, I think you need to see somebody who's aggressively taking their side and somebody who's producing some measurable results that appear to be making things better. And if you see that, I don't see the political wind going away from this sale at all. If anything, I would see that as being something that would intensify it. One of the other, I think, myths that was exploded in this election was that the demographics are destiny. We heard that a lot, of, a lot of my liberal friends sort of were talking about this. They looked to California in the early 90s and the mid-90s. And if you all recall, Prop 187 and after that effect, uh, Pete Wilson, um, they won a very big election in the year 1994. Uh, but after then, the De Republican Party has been in the wilderness in uh, California. There was a big feeling in 94, though, amongst a lot of conservative Republicans that this is the reinvigoration of the conservative movement. This is the reinvigoration of the Republican Party in California, and uh, the future is all gravy. Uh, of course, it was not in California. Do you think that that could be what it is on the national level now, or is this different? Is California unique, or is this nationally just like a very different election, or could we see a return back to this, um, to the demographics is destiny idea? The demographics of destiny thing was always both right and wrong. I mean, it is correct that uh, African-Americans uh, were voting more in 2008 and 2012 and even in 2016 than they had in previous years, that Asians, uh, multiracials, and Hispanics were growing. But the, it was false because it assumed that the Republican Party could not adapt its message in a way to appeal either to larger percentage of those groups or to increase their percentage among politically salient white groups. And we've just seen that that you know, the Republican Party may have been unable to do it, but the Republican president was completely able to do it. The new rising American electorate is not moving to the Midwest. The Midwest, the coalition that elected Donald Trump in the Midwest, 
will, if it does anything to bring in even the smallest number of suburbanites who deserted the party this year, be a stable coalition according to Rudy's, Rudy's own data up and through the 2024-2028 election. Um, there is, you may see many more elections where the Republican candidate wins the electoral college but loses the popular vote because the rising American electorate does not live and is not moving to states that will actually determine who the president is. I mean, one thing I jump in on here too is that, um, you know, one mistake about the rising American electorate thing was that it often got interpreted as writing off, right, this whole swath of voters. I mean, white working class voters are like, even with a fairly restricted definition, like at least 35% of the country, right? That is a huge swath of people to just write off and say- And we half can, of we the electorate in every one of the major uh, Midwestern That's states. That's right, and, and certainly with an electoral college math, it becomes right. even more uh, onerous or, or more uh, dicey to kind of go, go with that flow. So, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, um, that we're really looking at at a challenge here is, um, you know, are we going down the path of a kind of, you know, identity politics on both sides and then, and then just running it out um, as far as it, it can go? Um, but I think you're right. If Democrats want to win in the short term, they got to figure out a way to not just write off, um, you know, this group, even if the 30-year arc looks like in their favor, which it is. Um, they got to figure out how to well, reach- The 30-year arc is in their favor if the Republican Party remains mired in the idea that the Trump voters aren't Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, and you have that attitude among many Republicans, which is that we don't want these people in our party. These people are protectionists. These people are redistributionists. These people believe in an active government. This is not what the Republican philosophy is. And if that's what the Republican Party wants to say, they'll lose the presidency in four years. That's a good idea, Henry. How about maybe New Deal Republicans? Would that, that something that would appeal to them? June 20th, 2017. Pre-order <laughs> <laughs> on Amazon, right? So, uh, it's got a know, great cover. Uh -huh. I, mean, the yeah, I, I was American writing Bulls. about this in 2011. Of course, you you know, I, I wrote about the Midwest bulge in 2013. I wrote about how Romney wrote, lost the presidency because he failed to attract these voters in 2012. This has been hiding in plain view for everyone to look at, and they let Donald Trump steal it. Now, but what that means is that now they can't ignore it. Can you describe this group of people a little bit more, like uh, their economic philosophy or outlook? Their economic philosophy is that they want uh, government off their backs, but by their side. Uh, they don't want- so Keep your hands off my Medicare. Right, of course. Keep your government hands off my Medicare. Keep yeah. your government, look, Medicare works for these people. Mm -hmm. Medicare works for these people. Social security works for these people. Public universities work for these people. They won't support a party or they won't support a philosophy that calls those things into question. What they don't want is a government that belittles their lives, that tries to direct them to jobs and careers that they don't want, and tries to reorder society in the ideas of people who think that they're better than you are because they have more degrees than you do. Um, that means they don't feel at home within either the modern Republican Party or the modern Democratic Party. They've been looking, for the last Democrat they actually like is Bill Clinton. The last Republican prior to Donald Trump they liked was Ronald Reagan. These are not coincidences. And a, Republic, a Democratic Party that doesn't want to see that, which is what we've seen in the last six years, is one that gets what they got. A Republican Party that does not want to see that is one that got what they got in 2012, and because they overlooked that, got Donald Trump rather than somebody who might have been more palatable to them. So let's switch a little up. Sorry, if you want to go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think some of Henry's remarks can be connected to the research here in the sense that, you know, the emerging Democratic majority, which I 
bear some responsibility for promulgating it as an idea was always predicated on the idea that even as the country changed, you had to hold on to a very significant share of mm-hmm. the white non-college vote. Mm-hmm. And I said it over and over and over again for many years. Mm-hmm. And predictably, I guess, people only heard the first part after a while because they kind of mm-hmm. liked hearing it. Didn't hear the second part. But now they're in an interesting position where they had to think they have to re-engage with what I would call emerging democratic majority classic, which always included mm-hmm. a big role for the white working mm-hmm. class. And one thing that keeps them from doing that is they don't understand well enough the kind of stuff that we've seen here today in the research, that people's views are very complicated. Right. Mm-hmm. If someone has you know, sort of conservative views on immigration or what we call hardline views on immigration, it doesn't mean they're just like you know, racist troglodytes who just want to throw everybody out of the country and they, they hate all Muslims. And you know, it, that's not the way it is. If you look at what these people really think about the world, their views are much more complicated and there are things you can build on that actually might turn them in a somewhat different direction. They're not just like anti-all immigrants forever. And, you know, but that's bad for the Democrats to think that because that prevents them from engaging with some yeah, of these, and, and these voters. Re- Republicans can be, you know, often see, you know, one of the things that I thought uh, the Ted Cruz strategy as it eventually evolved when they realized that Christians plus fiscal conservatives were a third of the Republican Party, that, um, uh, they thought that uh, immigration and trade would be gateway drugs to true conservatism. If we give them immigration and we give them trade, then they'll support 10% flat tax rate and they'll support free trade and they'll support dismantling entitlements. No. Mm-hmm. Once you gave them that, they would actually, I think, then rebel against the subsequent things precisely because all of this is its a consistent worldview that does not fit neatly in the right-left dialogue that dominates this town. Now, what about a lot of these other social issues? I was surprised to the extent that, say, gay marriage didn't really play a role as much in this presidential debate as I thought it would be. Donald Trump is probably uh, one of the more openly uh, pro-gay marriage, uh, has no problem with transsexuals, you know, all this stuff. Fairly socially liberal guy uh, in his actions and at least a lot of his statements on a lot of uh, the the religious-focused issues, but also crime, terrorism, drugs, uh, a lot of these other social issues really reared their, uh, their heads in this campaign. What role do these play, and which ones are the most important, Mayera, about religion uh, and this tolerance and the feelings of terrorism? How much do you think this has impacted uh, a lot of the work you've seen about you know, the feelings toward Muslim Americans? I mean, I think this, this concern over safety uh, feeds enormously in, into these policies. Um, you know, talking about uh, sort of knowing people and, and having empathy, more than half of Americans just don't know a Muslim. At, at least if they do, they don't recognize that they know a Muslim personally. And uh, one study, a number of studies have been done about um, the media and uh, their sort of coverage of Islam and Muslims. And it, it is very, by and large, quite negative. One study uh, by a group called Media Tenor showed that 80% of media coverage uh, in the U.S. on Islam and Muslims was in fact negative, and that is a higher percentage of negative coverage than coverage of North Korea, which is actually a designated terrorist state. Um, so this is really a problem, and I think you know people's real and understandable anxiety over safety and and. Um, you know, making sure that the, the, they and their families are safe, I think, played enormously into the uh, the, the sort of political popularity. Um, one uh, thing that we looked at was spikes in anti, um, 
anti-Muslim sentiment since 2001. So we looked at 13 years uh, of, of political rhetoric and domestic terrorism and where anti-Muslim sentiment spiked. And what we found was that actually uh, anti-Muslim sentiment didn't spike at all after domestic terrorism attacks. In fact, after September 11, uh, September 11, 2001, it went down slightly. Favorability rose uh, for Muslims because George Bush made a very concerted effort in his political rhetoric to um, dampen any kind of, of negative effects. We also didn't see a spike in anti-Muslim uh, sentiment after the Boston Marathon bombing because Boston as, as a city handled that really, really well. Where we have seen spikes in anti-Muslim uh, sentiment is in the drum up, or, you know, sort of the lead up to the Iraq war and also in the 2008 and 2012 and now uh, you know, this past election amongst Republican voters. So I think the political rhetoric has really, uh, it's been a vicious cycle between political rhetoric and policy proposals. So the relationship between safety and Islam or feelings about negatively about Muslims. Now what about safety broadly, terrorism, crime? I mean, why are these things, concerns about these spiking where, as we heard before, in terms of the murder rate, in terms of um, uh, it seemed like the country was going more toward criminal justice reform that would lessen uh, the penalties in the criminal justice system. It seems like drugs was on the march to being at least marijuana legalized. It has been in several states. Um, how does that or fear about this play into the Trump phenomenon? We certainly saw um, Henry's been on a couple of panels with us at Brookings. I mean, the, the fears about terrorism, and not in some abstract way, but fears that you or a member of your family is going to be a victim of terrorism have jumped over the, just over the last few years, and particularly among Republicans uh, on, this, on this question. So that's a, a huge deal. But I think it links to a bigger issue because one of the things that I think uh, ties together what sometimes seems to be uh, kind of Trump being all over the map is this idea of protection, right? That they're vulnerable people who feel like they're getting screwed by big corporations, they're getting screwed by uh, sort of, you know, the, the elites, uh, you know, in Hollywood, the elites in D.C., um, and nobody's got their back. I mean, I think you're right. It's, you know, it's either off my back and, you know, ha got my back, you know, or off my back and on my side. I think that's right. Um, and, they're, they're, and, and what Trump has sort of set himself up to do is to say, look, I'm going to protect the jobs from going out of the country. Uh, I'm going to protect your churches, right, and your pastors. I'm going to uh, be, be kind of a strong leader that's going to stand in the gap and have your back on, on this. And I think this sense of people who feel assailed, I think economically, culturally, having someone projecting that is a highly appealing uh, uh, sentiment. And, and one more thing just on the drugs thing is um, we did some focus groups in Cincinnati among white working class independents. And one of the things that I think was really striking uh, to us is the degree to which the opioid epidemic has just decimated uh, many of these communities, right? And so that's also, in addition to the economic base, um, the cultural base has, I mean, there was al almost everyone in our focus groups that were randomly uh, recruited had someone in their immediate circle that had been affected by the opioid epidemic. And I think that's something we're also just beginning to wrap our heads around. So, so with that, I think we're going to turn to the audience for uh, some questions. So please wait for the microphone to come to you, wait to be called on. And this is a libertarian think tank, but I will tightly regulate the question and answer right. session. Ask a question, please, very rapidly. Um, this gentleman right here in the second row. 
Uh, I'm reminded that many therapists dealing with patients with Alzheimer's find that by recreating the old and familiar, their sense of disorientation and panic decreases. So to what extent does this therapeutic lesson um, reflect the results of this year's, of the last year's presidential and congressional elections? <laughs> as uh, Alzheimer's patients. I, I, I Take it away, East Coast. Don't have a good handle on that one. Maybe someone else can take it. Uh, I mean, I, I think that the nostalgia work is the best way to respond to this, right? That, that it is this real sense of, um, uh, one, one very quick thing, uh, I, I received an email from the Christian Coalition of America right after Barack Obama's re-election in 2012 that had a, a black and white photo of a white Christian family at prayer around the Thanksgiving table looked a lot like that Norman Rockwell Freedom From Want uh, painting. They may, may know it. Um, and it was there right, as this nostalgic image of what we've lost, right? Uh, and there was a man sitting at the head of the table, right, head of the family, and this kind of, you know, family assimilated around it. And there was this real, it was this real sense of like, okay, with Barack Obama's re-election, this is the lost America. Uh, and I think there's a sense of that. And, you know, and the retroactive, let's make America great again, it has the jobs piece for sure. You know, it's back when jobs were secure. Single, one father could go out and have a job, and the mother could stay home, and they could make ends meet like that. It has yeah, an economic you know, people base. lived in intact families. One of the yeah. deeply ironic things about the way white college-educated people sometimes look down on white non-college people and think, oh, they've got all these reactionary attitudes. Well, what they really want, in some ways, is they want what the white college-educated people have, which is intact families. You know. Uh, kids who don't go off the rails, who go to college, who make something of their lives. I mean, it's, if you look at the, the data on white non-college divorce rates and single parenthood and, you know, drug use and, you know, many, many other things, it's the white college-educated people who look more like the Norman Rockwell mm -hmm. picture these days than the people who are, in a sense, being appealed to with these images, which is kind of interesting and, as I say, kind of ironic. Next question. Uh, this gentleman here on the end, in the third row. Yeah, I'm Bill Klein, a retired physician. I'm wondering uh, where, in terms of populism, the one-third to maybe as high as 40% of eligible voters who didn't vote fit in. <laughs> yeah, it's always hard to, t uh, to know, but you know, one a lot of those people are non-white. A lot of those people are college-educated, although less so. Um, we had a very high turnout election this time by American standards. Is that um, uh, the, when you take a look at the, the voter eligible population, we'll have come close to 60%, uh, which is by American standards uh, yeah. not that bad. Uh, so uh, I don't think the idea of mobilizing the 40% who have never and probably will never vote is a very realistic one that uh, we we've got the you know Rumsfeld went to war with the army that he's got and we make policy with the electorate that we've got yeah I mean the standard data you know typically suggests that we don't have the final data from this election yet the census survey hasn't been released but I mean by and large non-voters are more likely to be minorities particularly Latinos and Asian Americans so we know somewhat how they lean. We also know that by and large, even controlling for other characteristics, non-voters tend to be somewhat more liberal in economic 
issues. Somewhat, sometimes it's called populist. They're big supporters of entitlements and things like that. Um, what's a little bit unclear is the people who didn't vote, were they more or less if they were white? I mean, I think we can assume if they were a minority, they were opposed to a lot of the Trump uh, social stance and the stance on immigration and so on. Um, but uh, among the whites who didn't vote, particularly among white non-college votes, the people who didn't vote, are they, were they more or less you know, Trumpist, as it were? And we just don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. I mean, we're actually, we have our survey. We might be able to take a look at it, but... Yeah, we've got another survey we're working on. But there's not enough non-voters in it. Right, there's yeah. not enough non-voters. And oh, so well. we match it with the voter file. Right, we'll make something up, but anyway, yeah. Next question. Uh, this gentleman right there in the uh, third row. Hi, uh, I'm Namo Abdullah, a journalist with Rudao. Uh, so tomorrow, President Donald Trump is expected to uh, issue this executive order banning uh, people from a number of ma Muslim-majority countries, including Iraq and Syria. Uh, this definitely seems like a populist policy, but how is, is it really a good policy? And wouldn't that contribute to the rise of anti-Americanism in, in the Muslim world, especially if Donald Trump is interested in defeating not just the Islamic State, the terror group, but it's also its underlying ideology. Thank you. Um, I would say that, yes, I mean, it's, it's of course, of great, uh, of great concern. I think um, just one overarching concern is that these policies that he is, um, you know, probably going to be enacting uh, that are going to heavily affect the Muslim community in the United States, I, you know, I think we'll have the counter effect to what, in theory, they're supposed to be doing, which is, right, in theory, making us safer. Um, one of the data points that we found uh, when we did a survey of Muslims, Jews, Catholics, and Protestants in the United States is that um, we, we asked about uh, sort of rejection of violence um, by small fringe groups against civilians. And, of course, Muslims, just like every other <coughs> faith group, rejected violence against civilians equally. I mean, there was no question about that. And no variable affected that, right? No, didn't matter how religious people were or anything. The only variable that slightly um, decreased Muslim rejection of violence against civilians was their alienation uh, towards their American identity. When they were made to feel other, when they were made to feel less American, um, they rejected violence in lesser amounts. And I think all of these policies that are only going to serve to alienate American Muslims from their, Muslim, uh, from their American identity are counterproductive to trying to keep this country safe, quite frankly. And to piggyback off of that real quickly for the whole panel, uh, quick responses. A lot of folks are worried about assimilation of immigrants and their descendants. Uh, the evidence that we've seen, the academic evidence from uh, snooty academics, is that it's going pretty well, uh, assimilation in the United States, by historical norms. Uh, do you think that a rise of nativism, of anti-immigration sentiment broadly, could slow down or have any negative effect on the assimilation of immigrants and their descendants such that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy? No. I agree. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, the only caveat I, I would add is that I, I do think uh, assimilation, what assimilation looks like today is different than what assimilation looks like in 1920. And one of the biggest reasons for that is technology, right? 
is that people can remain connected to their kind of home communities, their relatives in other countries on a daily basis via Skype. Uh, and there's also there's just not the ex expectation that we're doing the schoolhouse rock video melting pot thing to take it back to your book, right? <laughs> Where we all sort of take off our ethnic garb <laughs> and we come out in, you know, in business suits and, and, uh, and dresses on the other side. Yeah, yeah but there's always been, that's always been exaggerated. I mean, particularly among Catholic immigrants, you know, half of them or more never went to the public schools that supposedly, you know, acculturated them. They're going to Catholic schools. Um, and, you know, certainly and other immigrants remained in their communities for, for, you know, for decades on time. And, and assimilation happened without that sort of public push. But I do think you're right. I mean, uh, you can go into any ethnic community and on Saturday you'll find the men watching football live in their native country. I, I mean, soccer. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, so that, that's, a tech, that's a symbol right. that there's, that not only is communication cheap, but transport is cheap. Um, so um, they can be both in a way that was not really possible in 1927. And we have time for one more quick question from the audience. Uh, this gentleman right here in the front. <laughs> Herb Rose. Um, some have opined that uh, the rise of populism throughout the world uh, will lead to, in the not too distant future, the end of democratic liberalism. Do you agree or not? And what are your reasons? Well, I disagree. I mean, I think that's definitely a, it's not impossible, but it's for sure a worst case scenario. I mean, a lot of it comes down to what's your view of the origins of the populist movement we see, uh, both here and in Western Europe and so on. Um, if you believe it's all about uh, purely cultural rebellion, the rejection of the other, then I guess there's a possibility that the people who are fueling populist movements will just get even more pissed off over time because <laughs> their, their countries are moving in the direction of being more, not less, multicultural. It's just the nature of the beast. It's certainly true in the US, but it's even more or less true in most of Europe. Um, so, uh, but if you believe that it has something to do with the nature of the sort of growth regime we've seen in the last 10, 15, 20 years, the aftermath of a financial crisis is always brutal for this kind of politics. There's a really excellent paper by Christopher Trebish et al., which looks at 800 elections over 140 years in 80 countries, and, you know, the, the, the very, very strong relationship between the rise of right populist parties and the aftermath of a financial crisis. And sometimes there's a bit of a lag before it really kicks in, and we're probably seeing that right now. But typically it doesn't last forever, and it typically doesn't destroy democracy, though there were some examples of that in, in Europe a long time ago. But um, I am not convinced we're on that path. I think if the Western, Western capitalism can recover any kind of dynamism, I think we're, that's probably not gonna happen. I mean, if, things, if it doesn't, and things actually become a lot worse, we have recession after recession, then I guess all bets are off, but I don't see that happening. I would agree with Rui, but I think a lot of that is also within our own choice, you know, which is that if people who are doing well, you know, again, this gets to the, is dialogue two-way or one-way, um, that if these people continue to feel that they are not part of the country in which they reside, further shocks, to the economy or further shocks to their way of life will radicalize them and make Donald Trump look like a moderate. And there are countries during the Great Depression that handled that better than others. 
you know, Great Britain managed the, under the Conservative Party handled it better than the Central European countries or Spain and dealt with the question of are you going to listen to these people to de-radicalize them or are you going to stick your head in the stand and pretend that this isn't happening? If we want to pretend that it isn't happening, expect that in 10 years from now that somewhere in the Western world, somebody who will make Donald Trump look like a moderate will govern what we consider to be a civilized country. I think, uh, unless <laughs> that's good. Uh, yeah. Can I put, I'll add, how about a, one uptick, maybe? Oh, uh, no, okay. The, uh, okay. Uh, this this may, be, uh, may be a little more on a positive note. Uh, I, I don't disagree with, with what Henry or, or Rui said, uh, but I, I do think there's, that you're right, I think it's, we have some real stark choices to make, yeah. I think, and um, maybe in the Democratic Party more than even in the Republican Party in some ways. That, but, I, but I think what many of these people who are caught in the middle um, you know, who aren't ideologues and I think haven't drunk the Kool-Aid in any ways I think many liberals might want to say they have. Um, part of what's going on is like whether they can see themselves in the ongoing story of who America is and whether they can sort of, they, they feel a disconnect or are they on part of a journey as the country changes or are they getting kicked off the train? And I think that's, that's the real challenge. Can we, can we conceive of a story where the new American, the rising electorate is yes, part of the story, and the old waspy America has a place. I have a very short anecdote that, that <laughs> goes with that. I was in Australia, which is having the same discussions. They haven't had a recession in 25 years, but the fastest growing party is called One Nation. It is headed by a woman named Pauline Hanson, who for the uh, Australian population makes Donald, is basically a female version of Donald Trump. The last poll they took in September said that uh, half of Australians wanted to ban Muslim immigration into Australia. And when I was in Sydney over the summertime, I went into the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation headquarters. And going up in the elevator, there was this big poster of a Muslim woman that said, the face of the new Australian. Uh -huh. Then I got into another one after my interview, came down, and there was another face of the new Australia. This one was different. It was a Muslim man. Now, if a face of the old Australia isn't part of the new Australia, you're going to have problems. And if you have a face of the old America isn't part of the new America, we ain't seen nothing yet. Okay. Uh, I was hoping we didn't. Uh, we did end on a more optimistic <laughs> note. Than <a> <laughs> you you killed my optimistic note. You tried. Note, but all right, you gave yeah. it a good college try. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much uh, to the panel. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs>